This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA calls its controllers back to school. And VFR pilots will now have new tools at their fingertips when flying over and near wind farms. NASA pulls the plug on the X-57 electric aircraft project. On the other hand, Honda Jet goes forward with the 2600. Finally, a new AC reminds us how to behave in the pattern. And that is a really good AC. We're going to get into it soon. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Bill Thacker. Bill has the privilege of flying EAAs. He's one of many people, we should say, who has the privilege of flying EAAs Ford Trimotor, barnstorming around the country. And they happened to be in Frederick a couple of weeks ago, and we caught up with them and got to hear what it's like to, to fly that big old beast. And tip of the hat to Julie Walker and Josh Cochran on the video side. The airplane is based at Port Clinton, Ohio, Ian, and that is a good airport to stop at on the way to or from AirVenture. Is that the Pi Airport? You've been there, right? Is that the one with it's the, the Pi? It's the airport that has the, had the diner, which oh, okay. closed and oh, is no. now reopened. Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> yeah. So a good place for refreshments as well. All right, cool. Ten, the Ten Goose Diner, actually. That's Ten it. Goose. Just okay. thought of the name. Yeah. That's okay, it. good. <laughs> okay. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, we'll get to Bill in a few minutes. David, so runway incursions, obviously they've been a major issue for the FAA over, gosh, I don't know, the past decade at least it's been an area of focus. Obviously pilots are called to task constantly about this. And, uh, you know, not to pick on controllers because they obviously as a group do a phenomenal job, but it's good to see they're now being singled out a little bit for some additional training. The FAA is going to mandate monthly refreshers about runway incursions. Yeah, because it was such a hot topic in the news from December through uh, early spring, there were at least six serious mishaps. And we want to thank the folks at AvWeb because we're reading a little bit of the comments from their story. But yeah, that's pretty intense. But monthly refreshers, that'll help. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that air traffic controllers were very helpful to me. I flew into Dulles International Airport a couple of weeks yeah. ago. And in fact, the runway incursion, that kind of environment was on my mind as well, sure. as yeah, well absolutely. as the controllers, because there was an airplane landing when I was attempting to land as well. But we had enough clearance, the controller told me so. Yeah. But nonetheless, cross runways, hot spots on airports, 
things that have been real problems in the past few months are, are now going to really be subject to some refresher training. Yeah. So I guess this is a result, uh, an idea that came out of a, I mean, it's not a really groundbreaking idea, but a good idea forward that came out of a safety summit that the FAA had in March about this. You mentioned they've been in the news. I mean, I do wonder a little bit if this is kind of a result of some of that coverage, because especially with YouTube now, there have, there are, right. I've watched a few of these, some of these people do really good detailed analyses of of these events. And man, it's scary, right? When you see like just, you know, one action that would have changed that would have resulted in a major catastrophe. So yeah, and speaking of that YouTube, uh, that sort of that recreation, one was so realistic that people watching that video thought it was real. Oh, really? And it, <laughs> and it was a recreation. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. Another thing to keep in mind with the refresher training, I thought this was interesting, too, that ATC personnel, can now participate in a new voluntary safety reporting program mm. that will help identify potential safety hazards, yes. et cetera. Yeah. So that's key also. Yeah, it is. We know those work, obviously. So, hey, moving on to VFR charting changes. This is a good thing. I, last time we talked about VFR charting changes, they were bad because it took away some of the international info. But now some good stuff is coming on. Yeah. And that's wind turbine farms. Obviously, these are springing up all over the country, all over the world, really. And the FAA is going to change the way they chart these, and it's definitely a change for the better. It's going to be way easier to see these wind farms charted e either on a paper chart or on a digital chart because it's almost the same thing. And it's going to go into effect, Ian, on August the 10th. So that's pretty soon. Yeah. You know, I guess that's within the 56-day cycle, charting cycle perhaps. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, when you think about these wind farms, don't forget they're generally found at the highest and also windiest areas. Oh, sure. Or if not the yeah, highest areas, certainly the windiest areas. Yeah. Often they are the highest areas. Yeah, mountain peaks and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, here in the Appalachians, we have quite a few in West Virginia and Virginia, right, right across the Maryland border. But when they were starting to be built in the early 2000s, there were about 25,000 wind turbines in the United States, and that has sprung to more than 75,000 of them. So they've tripled the number of wind turbines, and the average height is about 500 feet. Wow! So think Gosh, about that. Tall, you know, if you're, yeah. you've got yeah, and you're thinking about clearing uh, a ridge at about mm -hmm. 500 feet, and mm -hmm. then you see a turbine on the other side. Well, you're right up on the turbine. Yeah. You know, and for, I, I mean, I know for a lot of fixed wing pilots, you think, oh, 500 feet, I don't need to worry about it, right? But for helicopters, that's, I mean, that's right down there. Oh, right. And, you know, the, they say the Robinson Safety Course, for example, recommends never going below 500 feet, and that's because most obstructions are below 500 feet. But of course, so many pilots, especially helicopter pilots, do fly below 500 feet. Right. The areas are going to look a little bit, it reminds me a little bit kind of like a swampy look on the chart. They're going to be kind of have that blue 45 degree hash. Uh-huh. But unlike, I think, the swampy areas, they're outlined with a blue dash. So if there's a collection of, you know, wind turbines, a wind farm, it's going to have that kind of blobby look with the with that hash mark, and it should be really e easy to see. I mean, the example on the yeah. news story AOPA.org shows them pretty easily. There's little wind farm depiction things inside it, so you'll know what it is. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, it is, but it's a. I think it's going to be a lot easier to look at and find mm -hmm. on a sectional because before they kind of blended into the background a little bit yeah, more. Definitely. And an, another thing that's real interesting to be noted is going to be the the highest altitude of the 
the turbine, like like the tallest blade, mm. you know, the height of the of the height of the stock plus the tip of the blade. Okay, okay, so as high as the structure can possibly go, basically. Correct, correct. Because because yeah, don't forget good. the blades are not not lit, you know. Yeah. So keep that yeah. in mind too. Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah, so keep an eye out for those and uh, a change for the better. And just as a just as a shameless plug, you know, AOPA was involved in the discussions that went into this, just like we are for. You know, I think sometimes it's easy to forget. It's like all the stuff that we do on Capitol Hill, but we have a whole staff that works on a lot of these issues behind the scenes. And so definitely involved in, in uh, making that happen. Yep. All right. Want to talk about electric. We always have to touch on electric if there's news. And there is. And that is that uh, NASA has pulled the plug, run out of juice on the X-57 Maxwell project, basically saying, oh, just forget about it. Thing doesn't work. Yeah, I thought you were going to lead into this segment by saying uh, moving on because yeah. then I was going to say, well, <laughs> speaking of moving on, but yeah. you know, it took them uh, it took them a long time to realize that the battery technology and the small electric motors weren't going to work. It's like six motors per wing mm-hmm. on this Technum P2006 model, the array of small motors. And listen, Ian, it only took $87 million worth of research to figure out that this wasn't going to fly. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, yeah. You know, this was, I think what's fascinating about this, It's a, it was a multi-phase project. Yes. Unlike... It, this has always been interesting to me because it's a GAX plane, right? Right. Which is r- right. super cool because obviously the history of X planes is with high speed jets and things like that. But yeah, this one was this multi stage. They're going to fly the P2006, get some basic flight test data. Yeah. Then sure. fit the motors with the gas engines, then fit them with electric. And But it's like, man, they didn't even get to the electric part. It's, they just said, no. they threw out their hands and said, forget it. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work at all. And it's been, NASA said, and you know, coming from NASA, I think that holds some some street cred, you know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, officials said that they can't do it safely in the time available. And uh, don't forget, Technum folks shelved their own project. We talked about that mm-hmm. either last episode or the episode before. Yeah. So uh, battery technology still isn't as advanced as as we hope it would be for these types of hybrid environments. Yeah. So this is interesting because I think if, you know, there was just a story that you pointed out, you found in Reuters about one of the other EVTOL projects. Volocopter. Mm-hmm. Or Volocopter. The, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. They're trying to, I think, what was it? Basically, they're trying to make service in time for the Paris Olympics because it's obviously a very public event. But the story went on to say it's like, eh, they're having funding problems. This they obviously are. can't help because it's like as soon as a, an investor gets wind of the fact that NASA couldn't make this work, it's right. like, why do they think Volocopter is going to be able to make it work? So You know, yeah. I, I like the idea, and I do think that there's a place in, at least in flight training, for hi, the hybrid technology yeah. to, yeah. to you know, help lower the cost of entrance uh, into aviation. We hear that so many times. It's so expensive to be in aviation. Well, if you can keep it around the pattern and have electric, you know, engines instead of burning gas and the and the models maybe are a little bit less expensive, then maybe the price structure will come down a little bit. But we just can't shove those power packs in and out as quick as we thought we could. The batteries are still heavy. I mean, maybe the technology is out there. We just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope. And we'll be right back. Hey, something that I think will work, and that is the new Honda Jet. This is something they teased at NBAA recently. Now they've decided they are going to make it. They're going to call it the Honda Jet 2600. And building on that Honda Jet efficiency, they think they're going to be able to kind of run the table on this light jet market by being able to go coast to coast. 
coast to coast, Ian. That's a real strategic move for this uh, for the Honda company, and they're going to still use the pods, the jet pods on the wings for yeah, the propulsion, the wing, yeah. which yep. is kind of their signature. And we looked up a couple of numbers here. We're, we're talking about going coast to coast. You're right. So that's what? So we'll say like 2,300 miles or something like that to go coast to coast. Okay. About. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> we looked Nautical, at a couple yeah. of options out there. The Embraer 300 Phenom is able to go 2,268 miles mm -hmm. at 521 miles an hour. Yeah. So that's um, precise perspective, though. That's, what is it, six to eight passengers maybe with two pilots? So, yeah, definite light jet sort of size. Yep. And, and the, But we're looking at the Honda 2600 is predicted to have seating for up to 11, which yeah. includes one crew member and 10 passengers. Yep. Yep. So that's that's so, the size of about I think we were looking about a CJ four. Uh huh. Now we should keep in mind these things aren't going to be able to go coast to coast with that many people in it. But right, that's true. Yeah. So two separate things. You know, one is how many can they carry, and one is how far can it go. But the CJ four, I think the max range on that. You know, they're saying twenty six hundred miles for the Honda Jet. I think the CJ was like twenty one fifty or something like that. So five hundred miles farther. But now the Honda Jet's capable of cruising at flight level four seven zero. So that's pretty high, but yeah. you're right. 450 knots, true airspeed, max cruising altitude of le a flight level 470, 2,625 miles, correcting my 2,300 miles. But those figures are with one crew member and, and four passengers, so mm -hmm. it's not a full load. Yeah, right? right, of course. Yeah. But now, but now, what about something like a Learjet 31A? That is a fast airplane, yeah. 617 miles an hour. 1,877 mile range, so not, not quite coast yeah. to coast. Yeah, right. So they've already talked about some of the suppliers showing, I think, how deep they are into the program. One of them, incidentally, is Spirit, who builds the fuselages for the 737, uh, who's now just on strike. <laughs> so there's I just gonna read be, that. Yeah, yeah a little absolutely. delay there, but that's okay. Oh, we should say the engines are going to be Williams, the FJ-44s which is, as we know, are very efficient, which kind of leads to help some of those efficiencies. So they're, right. I think they're saying certification 2028, which seems like a pretty realistic goal. I like that. Five years from now, five years away. So let's hope that they'll march towards 2028 and get that airplane in the air. Yeah. So, all right, we want to finish up talking about this new advisory circular. This is AC90-66C. Normally, that wouldn't be something that we would talk about because it's like obviously kind of in the weeds. But you and I were both fascinated by this because it's all about non-towered airport operations. And there are some real gems in here. Yeah, this is really interesting. You know, normally with an advisory circular, I usually would read them before bed so I could mm -hmm. go to sleep. I hate, yeah. Sorry about that, FAA buddies. I know you work hard for this. <laughs> um, but this is a really interesting one. And, and one thing that really you know struck me right off the bat was the FAA does not regulate traffic pattern entry, only traffic pattern flow. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're splitting hair, we're splitting hairs with that. Yeah. But the whole point is that, that pilots are expected to observe other aircraft already in the pattern and to conform to the traffic pattern in use, which is a yeah. key piece of information. Yeah, and as we know, there is a... As they say, they really carefully use the word regulate there because there is the regulation that it's left hand mm -hmm. instead of unless otherwise uh, indicated. So right. that's right. So while you can do still a straight in approach, you can do an overhead, you can do a 45 degree entry, you can do a midfield downwind. 
You can do all those things. Technically, you cannot do a right pattern if it's left-hand traffic. So. Unless it's indicated. Yep. And I've actually I've landed at a few airports where they where there is a right-hand pattern to a certain runway. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's to mitigate noise signatures yeah, right. or parallel runway operations, yep. or maybe you know, a or crosswind, or something like right? That, or or yep. terrain. Yep. 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 But right here, right at like this is a pretty good advisory circular. I mean, folks really should pick it up. AC ninety. Dash 66C, as you pointed out, but not, um, I guess, point nine point two or paragraph 9.2. There's one thing that came right to my mind. It says, fly the standard traffic pattern, which is what you were just indicating, Ian. Mm -hmm. Avoid straight-in approaches for landing to mitigate the risk of a mid-air collision. And then they go on to, to explain why. Yeah. So, again, really careful language there. Avoid. It doesn't say don't. Avoid. Right? All right. doesn't say prohibited. It says avoid. So I want to ask you, I know the answer because I know you. Are you a straight-in approach kind of guy? Not usually. It's like left-hand pattern. You're too polite. But if, you know what, maybe it's being from the South, but you know that was taught left-hand pattern, even at busy Peachtree to Cab Airport, and they had parallel runways. Oftentimes, when we were on uh, on one runway, it would be a right-hand pattern, obviously. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even here at Frederick, which is, we have a cross runway, but generally it's runway 05 or 23. If someone is working in the pattern, a lot of the times the controllers will will tell them to do left-closed traffic or right-pattern traffic to keep other incoming and departing aircraft away from the ones working in the pattern. Yeah. And they can run two patterns at the same time, which is really nice, that right. sort of thing. But at but mainly what we're talking about at, at non-towered fields is what the circular yeah, is all right, about. Right. Oh boy. I'm I'm gonna out myself here. I am not anti straight in, I will say. You're not. I'm not. But I'm you not. do straight in every once in a while? Every once in a while. I will. Uh-huh. You know, if I'm listening to the frequency for a while and nobody's around if I know there's sleepy airports, I might. I think there's a few reasons for it. You know, one is, as you mentioned, noise, right? You want to be a good neighbor. Yeah. I'll use that excuse. <laughs> the other is anytime you're maneuvering in the pattern, as we know from some of these midairs, you increase the risk of a collision. Well, that's true. A lot of these, yeah, have happened because somebody's turning and they're, as we've talked about, you know, they're they're in the, let's call it the downwind to base turn. They're blind and they're not paying attention a lot of times. It's like when you fly straight in, you you mitigate that risk. I just think people, you know, it's one of those things that people just get crucified over that I just think can have its place, right? The straight-in approach can have its place. At, at times, at times. Yeah. But now here's here's the counterpoint to that. A lot of times folks will be practicing an instrument approach, mm-hmm. which generally ends up, well, ends up in a straight-in approach. Mm-hmm. And I think instrument pilots might have the figurative blinders on and not realize that there are VFR pilots in the pattern doing their left-hand pattern or right-hand if it's indicated on the chart supplement. But I think that that does lead to issues sometimes, and it can. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I do think there. it's kind of like if you... um you know, if you're the one speeding down the highway, you know you're in the wrong, right? It's uh-huh. like you should go with the flow of traffic. It's like you don't have a, a reason to be mad at somebody else who's not going as fast as you are. It's kind of the same way. It's like if I'm doing a straight in, I know I'm kind of going against the flow, right? And so I need to keep an eye out for other people, and I need to defer to them. So I agree with you. If you're doing an approach, 
you you don't have first right to the runway just because you're doing a straight in, right? That's true, and I think that we need to keep that in mind. Folks like myself who are doing instrument training, as well as instrument pilots, instrument rated pilots, they need to keep that in mind. But the other thing is that a VFR pilot that might not be familiar with instrument approaches is not going to know what fix you're at when you even are self-announcing that you're at at XYZ fix. They're going to go like, where's that? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, we shouldn't have talked about this because I'm going to go on all my tangents here. Are you a 45 degree, 45 to the downwind entry guy? No. You're not? Okay. Not usually. What's your preferred? I'll, you know what I will do? Well, a lot. if it's an unfamiliar field to me, I will announce mm-hmm. that I'm going to overfly the field 500 feet above the pattern, mm-hmm. and I'll observe the windsock, mm-hmm. and then I, then I will enter a left downwind. Okay. You mean you'll descend from 500 feet above the pattern? altitude to then descend down into okay see i wouldn't do that because it can be hard sometimes you can be blind although you're in a high wing airplane now so if that's a little safer but i prefer not to descend down to pattern i am a do you fly out away from there you fly away from the airport and then come back in nope i hate the 45 i think it's terrible you either have to you are so often I think putting yourself in a position to either you don't fly away from the airport far enough right you do the right turn and somebody's coming, somebody's doing a wide pattern, you're going head on to somebody else already trying to do a downwind. Okay. Or you fly so far out that it's like, it's just a complete waste. To me, the safest entry is the midfield. Midfield downwind. I agree. You know, boom, you're coming straight over the top of the field and then you're entering. And I started doing that when I was flying the Cub at a really busy airport. And to me, that was because it's like, you can see both sides. You can see really well on both sides. I really prefer that. I, so. I agree with you on that. And when I'm not flying, when <laughs> I'm right. not overflying. Well, shut up now. No, no, yeah. no. I think it's a good discussion. <laughs> when I'm not overflying the field at an unfamiliar field mm-hmm. to get a better view of it, then I will do often do what the pattern entry that you mentioned. Listen, I, I'm going to take a wild guess that you are also not one of these folks that say, quote, any traffic in the area, please advise, end quote. I, I'm not, but I'm also not, I, people get so, so upset and it's like, I, you know, man, it's okay. I, I, I don't get that upset about it. The, the FAA circular that we're reading from now says pilots <laughs> somebody, somebody at the FAA be, is, yeah, they've been listening. They should not use this under any condition. Yeah. Ian. <laughs> this is, they're pretty serious about that. Uh, but now here's another thing that's also, I'm guilty of this. I usually say, like, you know, red and white Piper Tri-Pacer yeah. or white and blue Cessna 172 um, when I'm at an untowered field. I learned that a few years ago. I, I can see the value of that, yeah. Self-announcing 9.8.1 says it should include the aircraft type but should not use paint schemes or color descriptions to replace the use of the aircraft call sign. Now, okay, to augment the call sign, yes. Okay. I could you say yeah. Cessna one seventy two three two zero six Echo, or you can say you know white and blue Cessna one seven two three two zero six Echo. Well, that gets kind of wordy. It does. It gets a little wordy, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know how, about that. How about we just just say the call sign? Yeah, I guess. But it's like I get the I get the reason people use it, and I can see why it could be valuable. Just say because it's like mm-hmm. I can't read your own number. So what good is it to me at this point? Yeah. Uh, well, that's a good point. Yeah. I'll, so the other thing that we learned that you found that I thought was fascinating is they say you should, if you're on the ground before you take off, uh-huh. you should be listening to CTAF 10 minutes prior to take off. Yeah, that, that 
that hit me like a, like a bag of bricks because yeah. I'm thinking, you know, like, well, we probably have 10 minutes before between the time that we pre-flight and start the engine and yeah. get to the runway. But, I mean, you're supposed to listen to SeaTac for 10 minutes prior to taxi at an uncontrolled field. I mean, yeah. often I've landed, I've filled up with fuel, I've turned the aircraft on, <laughs> and I've announced, I've looked around to, to see if there's anyone in the pattern, I've listened, and and, and I've announced what I was going to do, and I've, I've taxied and hit the runway. Yeah. I know. I don't think it was less than 10 minutes because, I mean, the GoPro was still going and the GoPro yeah. battery wasn't dead <laughs> That's right. Yet. You're like, hurry so, up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. Okay, so here's my pet peeve. I'll tell you my pet peeve uh, other than okay. the 45. And that is the people who announce that they're taxiing. This is something I just have never understood. It's like people, you'll hear this, you know, Cessna 12345 taxiing north ramp to runway five. And it's like, I don't care. I don't understand that. It's like, I'll see you. We're on the ground. We're going like five miles an hour. Why are you telling everybody in a 10-mile radius that you're moving on the ground? I, I, somebody needs to explain why people do that because I don't get it. So would you prefer that they just announce that they're ready They're ready for departure runway two, three? They're taking the runway. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's like it's, you're, in a, you're in a taxiway. I, I just don't get it. I mean, maybe, okay, if, I'm, if, I've, if somebody's landed – and they're about to pull off on the taxiway that I'm on. Uh-huh. Okay, maybe I'll tell them because we don't want to go nose to nose and be, you know, in a, in a standoff. Sure. Okay, maybe. But like, otherwise, I, I don't see the point. Yeah, I don't you, get it. Yeah, pilots have traded paint on the ground by not announcing where they're going. And then all of a sudden, you know, a wing is sweeping past a rudder. So uh, I guess. But to me, it's like most of the time that's because they're not paying attention, right? Because they're, I don't know, programming gps's or something like that well so anyway, that's enough <laughs> well that's something i learned i actually i went flying with a with a bob rizzone he's a vision jet pilot and here's what i learned just flying with him recently mm-hmm. he was taxiing and and i didn't comment on it but i just listened and took note he said to his wife was flying right seat with him and he said to his wife i'm taxiing now i'm not doing anything else everything else can wait yeah. And so I took a page out of that notebook because I would like taxi and turn the DG and kind of yes. you know do other stuff. But it's like I think you need to put you know put your serious shoes on and just concentrate on taxiing. Yeah. Especially if you're in a tail dragger, of course. Yeah. But even yeah. in a in nose wheel airplane. So that was a cool takeaway. That's a great point. But yeah, yeah, what else can we do on the ground to let people know you know where we are and, and to be safe? They'll see you. They should have yeah. their head outside, okay. see, because they should be taxing. Yeah, I mean, it's like I, I that I, I just don't get it. I will say you're right, and you know, I've noticed when as I've gotten older, because you know, I started flying when I was a teenager, right? And it's like you think you can do 25 things at once, because your brain probably can do 25 things at once. But it's like as I've gotten a little bit older, I've noticed I can't taxi and do something else at the same time, and so I've had to adjust and do exactly that, which is like you know, you'd be silencing your cell phone at that time or writing down something or rolling out a chart at a certain point or programming the GPS. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I have been heads down in the GPS, looked up and been halfway off the, you know, the taxi line. Right. Headed headed to the side of the taxiway. And it's like, you know, doofus, pay attention. And so, yes, I've had to do that exact same thing now, which is do only taxiing while I'm taxiing. Well, you have taken us off on a tangent, but it was a Sorry. good one, Ian. It <laughs> was a real good. Oh, but we the all advisor, have those. Yeah, advisory circular ninety sixty six Charlie. This is a good one, folks. Yeah. If you're listening to us on a regular basis, and you know we poke fun at a lot of things, this is actually good reading and a great refresher. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. 
All right. Hey, let's bring on Bill. Again, he is a tri-motor, Ford tri-motor pilot for EAA. He barnstorms around the country doing this. Really cool job. And be interesting to hear what he has to say about flying that old airplane. How are you? Hi, I'm doing fantastic. My name is Bill Thacker, and I'm here with the EAA to fly this lovely tri-motor. Tell me about the tri-motor. It's 1928, is that right? Well, this airplane is a 1928 Ford 5AT. It's owned by the Liberty Aviation Museum, which is in Port Clinton, Ohio. They are also in process of restoring another tri-motor. It's a really nice museum, and they've got a B-25. They've got some, some other airplanes there that they're, they're running. But they acquired this airplane from the Evergreen Museum in Medford, Oregon. Prior to that, it was actually restored by the Bill Hara Foundation, or the Bill, Bill Hara Wings and Wheels Museum in Reno. So you work for EAA, or tell me how it is that you got to be the pilot of this majestic airbird. It's so fantastic to be the pilot of this airplane. And to do it, I guess I could be called an employee of the EAA, but we're all volunteers with the EAA. So, so I had to suck it up and volunteer to fly the tri-motor. There are about uh, 12 of us pilots that actually are on the list to fly this airplane. We tour it about 45 weekends a year, so it's out all the time. We all take turns, and most of us come from a background of flying really old airplanes like DC-3s, BT-18s, you know, 195s, just old, round-engined airplanes. Tell me your background and then tell me what it's like to fly this airplane. Oh gosh, I, my background is general aviation. I started uh, as a kid learning to fly off of a grass strip, got that on my A&P at the same time, so I was definitely hooked along the way. And then I went to this really big school in Ohio. Yeah, so it's got an O on each end and high in the middle. So I went there and I actually got my degree there and then instructed my way through college there and then moved on to flying freight and beach 18s and then through the airlines and actually retired from United Airlines about two years ago. So what you flew for most of your life was fairly modern. What is the difference between a modern aircraft of today and this old bird? The differences between, say, a, a Ford Tri-Motor and a Boeing 747, okay, not only was, the, was when they were designed and by, by the experience of the engineers that actually designed them, but in 1926, late 25, when these airplanes first hit the drawing board, the, it was a pretty blank slate to work from, so there wasn't a lot of data. And they were looking to build a big airplane, you know, for, for the time, a huge airplane, to fit the need that, that Henry and actually his son Edsel saw to fly people from point A to point B. And so they had to start with that clean slate and figure out how to make it work. The differences are that the lack of, say, control harmony. In, in an airplane that you fly now, and especially like the 747, it's like waltzing. You know, the, the ailerons and, and the elevator and the rudders all work together, and you just flow, and you dance, and you waltz along. The tri-motor, not so much, okay? She's a wonderful flying airplane, but her ailerons feel like they're hooked up with bungees. The elevator is hypersensitive, and I tell everybody with the rudders, it's like it's leg day. Every day you fly the Ford. It's like going to the gym and doing legs. An additional way to describe that the airplane flies, and I borrowed this from, from a friend of mine, is that she flies like a grand old lady with much grace and aplomb. 
and she'll do anything you want as long as that's what she wants you to do. <laughs> and when you get inside, do you have this like transport back yourself? Like you feel like you're back in time? One of the, the things that are specific and unique to this Ford Tri-Motor is, is the Tri-Motor experience. And that experience begins not just as you step inside, but as you approach the airplane and you see it. It obviously looks so different. And if you take yourself back to 1928, which is really super easy once you, you're in the zone, okay, those people in 1928 were seeing something for the first time in their lives too. So they were used to taking seven days to get across the country. Edsel wanted to do it in 48 hours, and he did. That's the whole premise behind the TAT, and you can look online. There are several uh, YouTube videos on there about coast to coast in 48 hours, and it features this airplane that's in there. But what happens is you do go back to 1928, and those people in 1928 were walking into the future. You know, they, so, so we're meeting in the middle there. What the people saw as they got on it at that time was, okay, they, they, they got some solace, some comfort in the fact that it looked a lot like a Pullman car, because that's what they were used to flying in. And that was part of the design criteria that Edsel laid down there. It had to be made of metal so that they could wrap on the side, you know, and, and hear it and, and, and hear and feel the structural integrity of, of the plane because keep in mind at the time most of them were made of linen and wood and, and tubing. You know, you couldn't really wrap on the side. Now, for your experience specifically, as you take a trip back in time now, you're, you're walking out of a Dreamliner 787 made of carbon fiber, okay, and now you're going back to 1928, and it's very easy to do when you walk inside, you see the, the beautiful sconces above the windows and the curtains, okay, not shades, curtains. Oh, and this thing called legroom. You've got plenty of that in here, okay, plenty of legroom. We also are equipped with heat in the summer and air conditioning in the winter. You know, that's, that's the, the little tubes on the side that you can open up and blow that air onto you. So that's how you make that transport back. When somebody would have taken off in 1928 in this airplane and they were going to go across the country, sure. what would they be wearing? What would they have paid? What would their experience be like? Were there things to eat? Were there things to drink? What, what was that whole, can you take me, take me there? I'll take you back to 1928 and, and say you're, you're getting on the TAT with this airplane in Columbus, Ohio, because that's where it started. That's where it did its first revenue flight was Columbus, Ohio to Wichita. It took a couple of stops to get there, but that's what it was. But they were moneyed people of the time. And so a ticket coast to coast would be, and I've, I've heard several numbers back and forth, okay, but the best I can come up with is about $1,500, which was a lot of money in 1928. Okay, so they would pay that money to get on an airplane and actually it was more than an airplane because they would actually start on a train. So let's say coast to coast means getting coast to coast 48 hours. Didn't necessarily say you were flying coast to coast in 48 hours. So they would start in New Jersey, okay, and they would actually get on a train right through the Poconos and they get out of the, the, the foothills to the west and then Columbus, Ohio in that morning because they would board in the evening. In the morning they would get on a Ford Trimotor. Now they were money people. They were dressed to the nines. They had their suitcase. And if you look at some of the YouTube videos that I mentioned before, you could you can see them actual footage of, of people getting on the airplane. They were it was dapper, okay, really, really to the nines. Then they would get on a tri-motor and they would fly all day long. You know, hopping to stop to get gas. They and would you change airplanes. Bathroom, right? Bathroom. It's funny that you mentioned a bathroom. Yes, this airplane is equipped with a bathroom, or I should say a hole. Okay, so not unlike the trains, we're 1928 here, so there is a hole, you know, and so there's a door as you go into the airplane from the rear door, you open it up, there's a lavatory door, there's a little sink in the corner, a little, you wash your hands, and then there's a bench with a lid and a hole. And so 
they didn't necessarily there weren't a lot there weren't a lot of cities but you definitely the bathrooms weren't open over the cities but in the country you didn't want to look up so the women and the men are all dressed up and if they do need to i'm gonna harp on this one you do need to go back to the bathroom that was quite a ordeal well to to go to the bathroom i don't know it was any more difficult than it would be to go around that fence over there <laughs> okay we'll get off the bathroom so um were there food services and beverage and stuff like that was it a high-end experience or was it just you're here and we're gonna fly they actually, uh, food, drink, and, and, and comforts, you know, what was introduced along the way, they did serve coffee. There, there's actually, I've seen at airline memorabilia shows, I've seen coffee urns that were, you know, labeled as they came off of tri-motors. I've not actually, you know, flown a tri-motor with a coffee urn in them, but they did have coffee urns and water and stuff like that. And I even, in, and I have seen on some of the videos, you know, that would have had air hostesses that was on board, you know, the airplane at that time. So you're in Frederick and you guys travel around the country and offer rides to people, right, for uh, donations. We are here with the Experimental Aircraft Association out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We're actually kind of a, an outreach from National in Oshkosh to get out to our local chapters. And, and so we're here at Frederick, which is, you know, they got a very active local chapter in that. And of course the AOPA presence is here. So this is a great, great place to be. And so we're out to get people, the general public, to provide another avenue for the general public to come out and get up close and personal with, with aviation and the, the hook hopefully as a Ford Tri-Motor. How many will you fly and for how long and what will the trip be like? The trip that we do with a Ford on, a, on ride weekends like this is about a total of experience of about 15 minutes or so, which includes the startup, which sounds like a herd of Harleys. It's just everybody loves that. And so, so the grins start from the time they approach the airplane till they get done. But we'll start the airplane up, taxi out, go for a big, a big loop, usually nine, 10 minutes worth of flying. And then the taxi in and the exhilaration of that and, and the shutdown just puts a smile. Actually, it, it, what it does, it fixes the smiles on people's face. And do you normally get a lot of people coming out for these? Wondering what the, the curiosity about the um, time period is. For us, the public interest varies a lot with the preparation and that the local chapter and the participants, the sponsors have done to, you know, to get the word out, you know, whether it's through social media or traditional media or whatever, to get the people out. And of course, a large population helps a bunch, you know, but then also you'll get into pockets, uh, areas where it's like nowhere, but they happen to build airplanes there or they, you know, they have, they have some connection to the airplane industry or something like that. That definitely brings them out. Also, historians, those specifically like with Ford, you know, Model A's and Model T's and that, if they have a big car presence, we'll often get a big presence with that too. Okay. So again, you told me that your background is GA from the very beginning, all the way to the point of the airlines. How many hours do you have and what special skill do you think you need to fly the tri-motor? Well, I've been flying for quite some time, and so you're, you're right. I started in NGA, moved through the airlines, and so I have upwards of 30,000 hours. The, the special skills to fly the tri-motor is, is really uh, experience and a background in flying older, non-traditional airplanes. So like Beach 18s, DC-3s, you know, uh, those airplanes that are not only tail wheels, but have radial engines and non-traditional behaviors, even though it's lovely airplane to fly. So 
old aircraft, what's your favorite old aircraft to fly? I'm standing in front of my favorite old aircraft to fly. Flying the Ford Trimotor is definitely the pinnacle of my career. I started as a kid flying Piper Cubs and general aviation, worked my way through that until I made it into the, the majors and got to fly everything, you know, from Bach 111s to 747s and eventually finished on the 787, which was the last and latest designed airplane for transport category. This airplane was the first airplane for transport category passengers. And so how can that not be a pinnacle of any career? Do you ever have a moment when you're in there and you kind of feel like you've gone back in time? Like you just feel like, wow, I feel like that time. I have a moment every time I fly the airplane. And it's, I call it my high and the mighty moment. So anybody that's ever watched that movie will understand what I'm saying with it. It's my high and the mighty moment. With my elbow out the window, droning along, whether, whether I'm hopping rides with passengers or flying it en route to the next stop. Is there any training specific to this that you had to do in order to get to do this? The training for the Ford is long and extensive. First, the, the training begins before you are even introduced to the Ford. In other words, you have to have a life full of flying old airplanes and, and non-traditional airplanes. And then once you move specifically to the Ford, then yes, we do spend a lot of time training both air work individually and then after we master the air work and take off and landings, then we move to the, to the tour stops. And so a potential pilot will have a minimum of 100 landings from the right seat before they even move to the left seat. You know, and then they'll get from there, it just depends. The number depends on how much experience the person has and how quickly they're producing through the training program. Do you all do this to increase interest in aviation or is aviation steady and it's okay, people still come out? Or are you trying to get people interested in aviation. Well, our mission with the Ford Trimotor and with the EAA is to use it as an outreach, to take it to communities so that we can bring aviation to them. Aviation has become difficult for people to get up close to, especially with, with the TSA rules and regulations of Homeland Security, especially since 9-11. So we've found that with us taking this Trimotor out and on the road, we get it closer to people and we actually increase the knowledge that people, I get so many first airplane rides, so many people that's never come to the airport but they saw this airplane fly over, they get online, they find out what the heck is that, and then they get in their car and they come out and they say, well, I've never been to this airport before. And then sometimes you might even get one to say, hey, why don't you go over to the local flight school there and see about, see about taking a discovery flight. Yeah, it's so cool what they get to do. I mean, I think to be able to provide that special experience to somebody, I mean, you know, in this case, they were there on Father's Day weekend in Frederick. So a lot of that's a special Father's Day present for a lot of people. And that's just that's really neat to be able to to give that to people through your flying. And the passengers are always happy to climb aboard, generally as happy or happier when they, you know, disembark. Get down, yeah. <laughs> but that rumbling tri-motor and those exposed engines and the cowling, uh, it's just amazing. It's just really yeah. a cool-looking airplane, that corrugated silver look. It's just so classic. It is. Yep, absolutely. And you get to see them at Oshkosh in a couple of weeks. That's right. That's right. And yeah. uh, and hopefully we'll we'll have some news to report from Oshkosh. We're going to try to do Hangar Talk 
live from Oshkosh. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, hey, we'll see you then. All right, David, that's all the time. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talking wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll see you. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.